Hey, do you like weird movies? You do? Have you heard of Vinegar Syndrome? Find them online at www.vinegarsyndrome.com. Vinegar Syndrome is one of the leading exploitation and grindhouse preservation and distribution companies in the world. They've got a simple three-step process that I call the three R's. Recover, restore, and release. Vinegar Syndrome has an amazingly large film archive consisting of thousands of 35 and 16 millimeter negatives and prints and are actively finding films that are underappreciated, undervalued, and underseen. So many of their releases have never seen the light of day since VHS, and they're restoring them to all their glory. Some of these films do not have the right to look as good as they do, but they do. I'm looking at you, corpse grinders. Vinegar Syndrome has their own method of restoration where their goal is to recreate the theatrical experience as best as they can. With their own in-house lab, they scan, color grade, and restore each title personally. You'll never see any grain reduction and digital trickery on their discs. Vinegar Syndrome is a very exciting label, and we're proud to have them as a sponsor. They've been with us since the beginning, and we love them for it. Check out their website today and pick up your copies of Rudy Ray Moore's Dolomite films, just in time for the new Netflix movie Dolomite Is My Name, starring Eddie Murphy. Also available is Hell Comes to Frogtown, starring Rowdy Rowdy Piper, James Hong's The Vineyard, Pledge Night, Lust in the Dust, starring Divine, Putney Swope, The Amityville Cursed Collection, and much, much more. Also, don't forget to pre-order your copy of Tammy and the T-Rex in glorious 4K Ultra High Definition or Blu-ray and The oh, Angel shit. Collection. Once again, be sure to visit them at www.vinegarsyndrome.com and grab yourself something cool. Let them know your good friend Michael sent you. Hey Nick. Yes? Do you like horror movies? Oh, you know I do. Do you like weird, extreme, taboo, and cult horror movies? Of course. They're my favorite kind. Well, I've got some news for you. Because MVD Entertainment Group and the popular Rue Morgue magazine have teamed up to launch the Midnight Movie Society. What? Yeah. They are a curated subscription video on demand service specializing in extreme underground, taboo, and cult horror movies. Now, genre fans can gain access to a film library of shocking underground, outrageous gore, creature features, cult classics, and much more. Those with a taste for the weirdest and wildest reaches of genre cinema will not be disappointed. The bigger platforms are catering to the masses and have gone puritanical in many cases, making it very difficult for filmmakers to reach their audiences, says Ed Seaman, COO of MVD Entertainment Group. MVD has a great deal of this type of content, and when it is live on major platforms, it performs really well. Maybe too well for some of the mainstream platforms. The Midnight Movie Society will also cater to more traditional horror fare as well, pulling from the thousands of film hours from in MVD's vast catalog. In addition, Rue Morgue will also be finding and curating fresh and unusual content for the service. Adriana Dober, director of programming, says as larger streaming platforms continue to crack down on content, there's an urgent need to create a space for boundary-pushing films unencumbered by strangling content restrictions. That I don't know why that word was so hard for me to say. <laughs> strangling. Strangling, especially given the content. As a lifelong horror fan, I'm proud and excited to be working with 
MVD Entertainment Group, and genre champions Rumor Magazine to bring Midnight Movie Society to the masses. Rumor Magazine is a name that everyone can trust. It's actually a horror magazine I used to buy back in the day, and they're Canadian, so you know they're extra fucking weird. And nice. Yeah, and nice. Best of all, Midnight Movie Society is supplying all of our amazing listeners with an opportunity to get on board and try the service out for themselves. If you go to www midnightmoviesociety.com you can save 33% off your first three months of Midnight Movie Society by using the promo code SHAMELIST SHAMELIST! SHAMELIST! We have our own promo code! Yes, you heard me, you will save a whopping 33% on your first three months. That's just insanity to me. So, once again, go to www.midnightmoviesociety.com and use the promo code SHAMELIST S-H-A-M-E-L-I-S-T no spaces. No spaces. All one word. Shameless. It's like you're yelling it at someone. Yell it at the promo code, but also make sure you type it in. Arrow Films is a leading independent entertainment distribution company established in 1991. Operating in the UK, the Republic of Ireland, United States of America, and Canada, Arrow Films is dedicated to supporting upcoming and established filmmakers of dynamic new cinema and developing an inviolable slate of quality films that enjoy a lasting legacy across its award-winning branded labels, channels, and platforms. Arrow Films is also a leading restorer and theatrical distributor of classic and cult horror films, including landmark titles such as the 25th anniversary reissue of Cinema Paradiso, the 15th anniversary reissue of Donnie Darko, and the 30th anniversary reissue of Hellraiser. These lovingly restored films are brought back into cinemas nationwide with brand new look campaigns with wide-reaching distribution, including outdoor event status screenings at various cultural festivals, and as one-off bookings in local repertory cinemas and film societies. Aerofilms is also widely considered to be the global market leader in the premium home entertainment market, fueled by passionate and expert curation aligned with state-of-the-art in-house film restoration, resulting in highly sought-after bespoke Blu-ray editions of classic cult and horror films across its Aero Video and Aero Academy branded labels. Beloved by collectors, these ever-expanding brands continue to delight their growing international fan base with regular interactive live events, festival sponsorship, and retail stands presence. Our offering extends to truly limited edition box sets, as well as associated spin-off products, now including books and vinyl records. We are so happy to have Aero Video as one of our new sponsors. You can find them at www.aerofilms.com. While you're there, be sure to pick up some cool titles. For example, they have the brand new American Werewolf in London collection, which is beautiful. The complete Sartana collection, Hellraiser 1, 2, and 3, Toys Are Not For Children, a new edition of Al Pacino's Cruising, and let's not forget a limited edition copy of Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas and an upcoming limited edition copy of RoboCop. There's so much more I can't even get into them all, but trust me when I say they are fantastic. And we couldn't be happier to have them. So once again, visit Aerofilms at www.aerofilms.com and check out all of their brands from Aero Video, Aero Academy, Aerofilms, and Aero TV. This 
movie podcast actually discusses movies. Be aware that it may discuss any of the following elements. Endings, surprise twists, unexpected cameos, and all manner of spoilers. If this doesn't appeal to you, why listen to a movie podcast? Without further ado, please enjoy our feature presentation, The Shameless Picture Show. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Shameless Picture Show. I'm Michael Byers, and today we're going to do something a little bit different. Uh, Nick will not be involved in this episode. So a couple episodes ago, I had my good friend Kyle Arpke on the show, and we had talked about our feelings about Rise of Skywalker, the newest Star Wars film. And technically, we recorded like three episodes in that amount of time. We recorded a Patre- our first Patreon episode. We recorded our Rise of Skywalker episode, which is like an hour and 40 minutes just by itself. And then we wanted to actually talk about our our feelings on Star Wars as a whole. And we wanted to rank our our feelings. We wanted to rank our we wanted to rank Star Wars in our preferred order. So we did that and we got an extra about 40 minutes to an hour out of that. Um and because of re- release schedules, I was trying to do one with Nick, one without Nick, one with Nick. Because I was recording so much stuff. I just had a lot of people who were free, and I just started cranking them out. And I didn't want to do a whole long period of stuff without Nick and then bring Nick in. So we were going, you know, as, uh, um, you know, they, they say sometimes with movies, one for me, one for them, one for me, one for them. Uh, so I was trying to, to stagger them. And uh, at one point, this Star Wars ranked episode was going to become a bonus episode, but I, I didn't like that. I just I never felt good about that because I, was, I really enjoyed the content in this episode. And with the Blu-ray of the newest Star Wars film just coming out, I thought now would be the perfect time to bring this out. So it's about 46 minutes of me and Kyle talking about Star Wars. It was a little bit longer. Uh, I'm going to mention now that at the very end, we are talking about um, Solo, and we finish our conversation on Solo, and then Kyle starts talking about the the rumored Boba Fett movie they were going to make that never came into fruition, and then the audio cuts. I've not been able to locate the audio. I have no idea where that went. Uh, I think we just had a snafu through editing, and I lost it. So as a little bonus, uh, I have added four reviews on the end. It's about 25 minutes of reviews. I reviewed two from Vinegar Syndrome, two from Arrow, um, so I throw that on the end. So at one point near the end of the episode, you're going to start hearing our theme music come in, uh, when the, when I, when I lost the audio and then it'll go to the review. Another thing worth mentioning, we, sh- we recorded this back in December, maybe even January. I was very sick at this time. I was sick for like two weeks straight. It started right before Christmas Eve and I just was not feeling good. Uh, I could still hear it in my voice. I think I also don't think I was holding the microphone properly because we're using Kyle's uh, recording setup, so my audio is not the best. So it's a combination of me being a uh, a dummy and not holding my stuff correctly, and being sick. But ultimately, I think this is a really fun episode. It's not as many clips just because we have such a solid conversation. I don't have to add filler in. Um, and then um, stick around to the end, and you will hear some fun reviews. So thanks as always, guys. Hello and welcome to part two of me and Kyle Arpke's 
exploration into Star Wars. Our trek into Star Wars. Ooh. I remember I told you one time that I started started watching Star Trek and you said I was betraying Star Wars. <laughs> the only... St- well, I've seen J.J. Abrams' Star Trek and Star Trek in... Uh, was it Star Trek Beyond, the third one that came out? Mm-hmm. And I saw Wrath of Khan. That's my experience with Star Trek. Okay. As a child, I saw... I was flipping through the channels... And I saw some episode of some Star Trek where there were people of, was it the Enterprise? Is that what it's called? They were on a baseball diamond playing baseball against kids. And at, I don't know, I was maybe nine years old at the time. And I went, nope, this looks cheesy. I feel like Star Trek again. I feel like if you were to sit down and watch it, you might find your enjoyment out of it. I'm actually surprised that Manda's got so into it. Um, and actually, to kind of round things out, since we talked so much about J.J. Abrams in the last episode, uh, he had said on an interview about Star Trek that uh, at the time I was like, fuck yeah, punk rock, J.J. Abrams, when he was like, he's like the first thing, I, when I went into the meeting with the Star Trek people, the first thing I said is, what can we learn from Star Wars? And he's like, I kind of alienated some of the people involved with the Star Trek franchise. And then... Um, um, and then he said this later on at the time, and I was like, yeah, that totally makes sense. And I um, I realized now that he was actually kind of insulting Star Trek a little bit by saying this. Uh, he was like, yeah, it's like Star Trek is, uh, he's like, Star Wars is fun, excited, there's a lot going on. Star Trek is very much like deep sea combat. And I was like, looking back and I was like, I thought, I was like, oh, that's kind of an interesting summarization of it. But looking at it, and I was like, I think you actually meant that in a very insulting way. Yeah. <laughs> from what I understand from people who are Trekkies, uh they really really hate what abrams did i think the first star trek he did was a lot of fun I like it is, it, yeah. it's a basically a star wars film um i think the second one is awful yeah i um, don't remember a single scene about it so that's pretty spot on if you haven't seen it star trek beyond is great that's the third movie yeah that movie i heard good things is so good and so underwatched Especially for being a blockbuster Star Trek movie, like that is—it's kind of crazy. We live in a, a world where Star film. Trek was a blockbuster because Star Trek was always a popular franchise. Sure, so much time had passed. Like I just when I think of Star Trek, I don't think blockbuster numbers. Yeah, because like in a lot of ways, Star Trek was always the more avant-garde show. Yeah, with a lot of its choices and the way it's doing things and its themes, it's definitely more of. While it's it, you know it's not like an art film in any way, it's always been kind of more of the artsy franchise in some ways. Um, but yeah, it's just kind of weird to think we had three blockbuster Star Trek movies. It's crazy, and no one's talking about them. No, I you know once you reintroduce Star Wars into things, it for better or for worse, Star Wars is such a cultural juggernaut that it just sucks up a lot of yeah. the space, and it sucks up a lot of the space for space movies like you've got star wars so no one's gonna go see other big blockbuster like fun summertime blockbuster sci-fi films unless it's a marvel film what i find truly fascinating about the star trek films though is they and it's they took they took a very comic book approach to it they are both canon and non-canon at the same time it's a different timeline and they talk about that in the first Star Trek film, where when they when Spock shows up at the end, you know, like actual written Leonard Nimoy, he's telling about things that happened in their timeline. 
So everything that happened with Kirk, you know, the original Kirk and original Spock, all that happened. This is just a different timeline in which other yeah. things are playing out differently. So it's like if you absolutely hate those movies, you can ignore them. But if you do like those movies, it kind of gives you an end to everything else, and it's still there. I actually thought that was I a really thought that was clever an extremely trick. clever way to do that. Yeah. And it See, was, we like J.J. Abrams at times. Yeah, well, and, you know, I kind of said, you know, I kind of crapped on him a little bit last episode, but I actually thought that uh, Mission Impossible 3 is a pretty good movie. Yeah. Like, you know, it's like, oh, sure, some of the, like, action stuff might not be, you know, it's not on on the same tier as anything that's happened in Ghost Protocol, Rogue Nation, Fallout. You know, those movies, their action is, like, top-notch action. Mm -hmm. But the story that it's telling, uh, a lot of the the sequences of suspense are really good in Mission Impossible 3. I think what we're realizing now is J.J. Abrams, a talented director, has really big ideas, really big scope. He gets a lot of action movies, but he's not much of an action director. Yeah, I also think that he maybe just overthinks things. I'd like to see him do something a little bit smaller. I'm not opposed to it. I'm not sure if he knows how. I don't know. Because he's been pretty much a star since early on. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting to think about. He seems like a decent human being, and he's made some really fun movies. And, I mean, you know, we're going to be talking about all the Star Wars films here, but, you know, when Force Awakens came out, I mean, that was... It reignited Star Wars that was a big you know, deal. for me. I mean, now my house is Star Wars. And, yeah. and in many ways, I can thank J.J. Abrams for that because it He got people it talking back. about it. Like, when I was a kid, Star Wars... Star Wars is always exciting, but not in the way that it is now. Yeah. Because it always was slower still. You know, it wasn't a slow Star Trek. But, like, it's now <clears> to a point where... It's not, have you seen Star the new Star Wars? How many times have you seen the new Star Wars movie? Everyone mm-hmm. is seeing it. Totally. And that's kind of a cool feeling. Even, you know, I've got my own personal fi- p- opinions about the new film. Not the new films, specifically just the new film. Because I liked the majority of everything that's come out so far. Um, but, I don't know, it's just kind of like a... Especially, too, because like, I see a lot of the Marvel films. I'm, I wouldn't say I'm necessarily a Marvel guy. There's yeah. some I really like. There's a couple of my own. Guardians of the Galaxy films I think are great. Yeah. Um, but it's not like... For me, it wasn't a big deal when when the two last two Avengers films happened. But it's like, this I could get behind people with. It's like when people are getting super excited for the new Star Wars film, I can get that. When people are like, oh, have you seen the new Endgame trailer yet? It's like, I haven't seen the first Endgame trailer <laughs> yet. Like, no, this I can get. Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely in the same ballpark as you, obviously. Uh, I'm a sucker just for big fun blockbusters, so I'll see most almost all the Marvel movies that come out just because I'm not opposed to them. I'm not Martin Scorsese or anything, but like I, it just I don't know. I feel like I grew up with these comics. I read a lot of these comics, and it's cool to see these big budget movies of them. I've seen these stories, mm-hmm. and that's not like it's not necessarily I don't want to see them again, but it's like. The people who are super excited for this are not the people that grew up with these books like I did. Sure. So it's cool for them. Yeah. And like I said, I'm still going to, you know, whatever the next big Marvel movie is, I'll probably go out and see it. It's just, not it doesn't to, mean as much to me as Star Wars does. Not to turn this into a, a comic book movie conversation, but I just, uh, I've come to realize like a lot of what movies are doing now, 
in the direction that some things are going are just not it's just not where I find things to be interesting. Mm-hmm. Like I really wish um I this might I don't know if it's I don't know if it's going to come off as pretentious or just old hat or whatever but uh over Christmas break like Jess and I rewatched um Nolan's Batman films and we actually rewatched almost all of the Batman movies but we watched Still a Batman Returns. It's my favorite. That movie's was the one we didn't watch because it was very hard to get through. Oh. With like 2020 uh, lenses over your Fair. eyes. It's Fair. like very off color. I We could get wrong. through it. It's very interesting. I thought I would like it more than I did. But um, I'm a sucker for Batman Forever, which is can be. Uh, I'm a sucker for it for the reason it's of... the first movie I ever saw in a theater as a kid. Nice. Uh, yeah, I'm a sucker for it for the reason of you know, being born and being able to see it when I was young. Oh, definitely. Uh, but I miss the sort of Nolan looking at superheroes in a little more of a realistic lens. Mm-hmm. Just because I think it root it it roots it back down into philosophically talking about human emotions and issues. Yeah. Um, I think Batman does a really good job of it. I think Nolan does a really good job of it in those films. And the one, uh, while I enjoy a few of the Marvel movies, in fact, I would say I probably have a positive opinion of yeah, them. I would say I don't think any overall. of them, very few of them I think are necessarily bad yeah. films. But they're just not like, they're just not hitting on a grander way of being a film like Nolan's films do, if that makes any yeah. sense. Like if someone were to tell me right now that like, oh, Christopher Nolan doesn't really like comic books or superheroes I'd be like yeah that makes sense mm-hmm. because he didn't seem like he made that film because he's like I just want to make a really cool superhero movie it's just really like it almost feels like he made this movie made those movies because it's like I don't get it but I want to yeah so it's very much why like I'm a you know I'm a big horror movie fan and I'll watch a lot of different types of horror movies but I'm usually the first one to admit the best horror films are made by people who aren't fans okay because they use or who aren't Necessarily just doing horror films because I feel like they have something. They're, they're making it for a reason. Yeah, they got something to say. They feel like the characters have something to say. The situation has something to say. Yeah, and by, by the time like Nolan's third Batman film, by the point that came around, it's like the reason I don't think I gravitate towards that one very at all because I feel like he got bored of the subject yep. matter as well. Totally. Yeah, a hundred percent. And it's a, it's actually like you know it's a weird thing, not to really make this into a superhero conversation, but. You know, we go from that then to, uh, was it Batman versus Superman on the DC side of things? Mm-hmm. Just, I, I remember seeing that, yeah. And that's a film that gets a lot of hate, deserves most of the hate it gets. Though but not as bad as some people claim to be. That's true. And then the other thing that's true about that this film that I think, like, all of these people really hate uh, the Batman that's presented in the film. And I actually, out of all of the things in the film the thing that i like about it is how it presents batman it like gives us a almost a what if situation of like here's a batman that's a little unhinged he's willing to kill some people he's willing to use some guns and it almost makes a more compelling batman yeah and in that way people were just angry because it wasn't batman doesn't kill people blah 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 and to be fair that scene was a fucking dream 
Yeah. Yeah. So it's not even right. But I'm like that to me. I'm like that's an actually like an interesting take on that character that can give us as audience members something worth uh, worth thinking about. One hundred percent. But the rest of that movie is crappy. Yeah. Anyway. Star Wars. Yeah. So how should we do this? Do you want to do it our least favorite or do you want to start at our favorite? Uh, I mean, I'm going to... Or, ass- wait, or we were going to go, like, we just read off our lists. Yeah. I'm going to assume that our top choices are more similar than our bottom choices. Okay. So maybe we should start... Going top to bottom. Do you want to go first? Sure. So my favorite Star Wars film of all time is Empire Strikes Back. That's number one. Number two for me is the original Star Wars. Number three, and this is where it starts getting controversial for people listening at home, The Last Jedi. Number four, Rogue One. Number five is The Force Awakens. Which surprised me, um, because let me, let me just uh, specify to people listening at home, is I, this is a, I didn't actually get a chance to make my list, so I went through Letterbox and figured out what had, I put it in the order that it was highest rated. Uh, so that's one, two, three, four, five, number six is Solo. So that's where it's surprising, because I, I really thought that Solo would have been high, rated higher than, um, Force Awakens. Um... And this is where it starts getting tricky, I think. Two, three, four, five, six. Number seven is episode three. Uh, number eight is Return of the Jedi. Nine is Attack of the Clones. Ten is Phantom Menace. And eleven is Rise of Skywalker. Okay. Uh, we have a very, we have more similarities than you think, um, oddly enough. I, I do want to preface this. I'm going to say I love all of Star Wars, as I'm sure you would say as well, basically. Yeah, yeah. Um, even when they, even when they're, they're dog shit, I still like them. Yeah. And i also say the top four, I could almost interchange like any day of the week. I feel like I could too. So my top four is, I put Empire at the top. Uh, as A New Hope, the original Star Wars is second. My third is Rogue One. Okay. Uh, fourth is Return of the Jedi. Those are films that I basically okay. love equally. Um, fifth is Last Jedi. Sixth is Force Awakens. Seven is Solo. Eight is Revenge of the Sith. Nine is Rise of Skywalker. 10 is Phantom Menace, 11 is Attack of the Clones. Okay. I, Rise of Skywalker is where it is because it's still a very new movie, and I don't think it necessarily should go last because I probably need more time with Funny it. Funny enough, I feel like it was a recent development that um, Attack of the Clones was higher than it used to be because I used to put it really low, but... It's still relatively low on my list. It's third from the bottom. But it used to be just, without even thinking about it, I just put it as the last one. It wasn't until this most recent rewatch that I started to lighten up on it a little bit. I'm just, I'm curious to know why it's not last. 
because to me, in all honesty, and I get, I'm like, okay, I get, you know, people can put Rise of Skywalker wherever they want to, and that's fine. Like, even if it's better than Rise of Skywalker, like, I, I can understand that. But to me, it's so obviously the worst film that I'm curious to know. I had I... much more fun watching it than I did watching Phantom Menace. Okay. Phantom Menace, to me, is still... It's it's not as fun as I want it to be. And um, the kid playing Anakin, I can't remember his name. Jake Lloyd? Yeah, I have a hard time watching that kid act. Um, I really liked Qui-Gon Jinn for the most part. Um, but like I said, for me, a lot of what was really bugging me was I just didn't like the way anything looked. Hmm. It was a hard movie for me to watch because everything looked gross to me. Weird. The CGI I didn't think looked very good. The weird mixing of scenes between 35mm and the digital tape that George Lucas was shooting on. Again, I'm watching like their new cleaned up Blu-rays from the from the Star Wars collection. And I just didn't like the way anything looked. The CGI I thought really took me out of the scene. Uh, out of a lot of the scenes. And I don't know. I just found myself like it's... it's I just didn't have a good time watching it. You don't have these same problems with Attack of the Clones. Not as much as I thought I was, because I was I was really convinced I was going to go in and have these issues. But like I said, for some reason, I just I, I latched on to whatever the fuck Hayden Christensen's doing in that movie in terms of performance, uh, good or bad. I thought um, I liked the world building quite a bit. I liked seeing more than just a desert in every fucking scene. Like I just. I know that and that's me over-exaggerating. Phantom Menace is more than just a desert, but I feel like I liked seeing a big cityscape. I liked seeing what Coruscant was like. I liked seeing this strange bounty hunter. I, li- uh, I, I liked... I don't know. I just... I... Okay. I'm flustered at the moment because I'm, I'm in a hard time remembering all the things I liked. Uh, and don't get me wrong, there were still things I, I really disliked. Um, but I just had a more fun time watching it than I than I remembered ever having in the past. Okay. Yeah, I guess I go, you know, I go, yeah, Jake Lloyd's... And I fucking love Count Dooku. So, I guess... It makes no sense why he's even in the movie. Right. I love him. So, here's the thing. It's like, to me, Attack of the Clones has, like, all of Phantom Menace's problems are amplified in Attack of the Clones. So, you know, you go, oh, Jake Lloyd's performance sucks. It has nothing on how awful Hayden Christensen is as this creeper dude oh, trying to get this chick. really fucking creepy. It is I'm... so creepy and bad. Oh, he is very creepy. The, in the dialogue that he is given is worse than anything. What I, what I think is really funny about, about Creeper Anakin is I can see the gears turning in his head where he thinks he's making an interesting choice. But isn't. Yeah, so I'm like, I'm but like, for me, I'll nothing, nothing is nothing is as cringe. Nothing that Anakin does in his Attack of the Clones is nearly as cringy as Jake Lloyd saying "Yippee." Yippee! I love Jake Lloyd saying "Yippee." That's the only thing about Jake. Oh, Lloyd I, I hate him. it. I, I hate it so much. <laughs> I hate it so much. It's bad. It's bad. Um, also, Jake Lloyd with his little kid, like with, with his little kid mouth, trying to say all the complex workings of Star Wars, just so funny to me. I will take that any day of the week over Hayden Christensen episode two. And then, like, me and Amanda, when we were watching Attack of the Clones, we kept saying, no wonder fucking Anakin goes to the dark side. His one father figure is a fucking asshole to yes. him this entire time. Yes. And we were like, I'm surprised he didn't kill him sooner. <laughs> right. 
so the 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 plot of Phantom Menace is convoluted. Mm-hmm. Not as they con- all are. not as convoluted as Attack of Clones. And oh, I'm completely agreeing with you there. Yeah, Attack of Clones is like my rating can't from it. Follow is, it. My rating for it is not coming from a place of how easy the film is to follow or intellectual size. Just which one did I enjoy watching more? Sure. I guess I go, I look at like the stuff that I enjoy from both movies. Cause there is stuff that in a weird way, even though I ranked rise of Skywalker higher, just because I'm like, I don't want to shit on it that much. Uh, I probably like more <laughs> tech clones and Phantom Menace, oddly enough, more than I like from rise of Skywalker at this minute, you know, uh, the thing is, is Attack of Clones has an awesome, like, space sequence with uh, Jango Fett and Obi-Wan in, through the asteroids. Yeah, that, that was great. That scene's great. I also really liked the f- <clears throat> the fight scene in the rain at the cloning facility. Oh, I think it looks so bad. Well, it does look bad, but I think I like the, I like the, I guess I like the, the pacing of it. Okay. It, look, it doesn't look great, but like... So effect, it happens. Effects don't look good sometimes. I think that the pod racing scene in episode one is it's the so best scene of the fun. entire. It's the best scene of the entire movie. And not only is that fun, but then on top of it, you have what could arguably be the best lightsaber duel is in Phantom Menace. The uh, the, the, the mall versus yeah. No, that's a great duel. Yeah. So you know, it has like these things about it that I'm like, oh, these are good ideas. It also has like. You know, um, I think there's some good world building going on in Attack of Clones. Uh, I, also, but, like, I, I love the chase scene near the beginning when they're chasing down that that uh, that oh, bounty Zane hunter. Wesley. And I just love, love that Obi-Wan's instinct is, I'm going to just jump out head first out this fucking <laughs> sure. window. Yeah. Um, and then like uh, uh, the interrogation scene, for lack of a better term, when they're trying to track her down or him down in in the bar. Uh, I just there's so much stuff that I was like, this is really cool. It just it all seems to kind of lead. It ends up like feeling an even more convoluted plot. That uh, yeah, I don't, it's just a weird like it's a decent sequence. Yeah. Um, but it also has a, a few bad CGI moments and a little. It, it doesn't. Uh, I'm rather forgiving on bad CGI because if you look at movie you look at many movies from that time period a lot of them had bad cgi yeah i hear you um i guess uh i don't get into context of what else was coming out sure sure but at the same time everyone look you know for the most part looks at this way and i think it's it's legitimate to look at this way when the bad cgi looks worse than how they used to do things like i would take how things look in the original star wars films over how things look in the prequels and oh i completely agree so if we're using bad cgi as a as if something that makes a bad movie then all the harry potter movies are shit well i mean we're not using it as something that just makes a bad movie but it is something that does i I guess i'm just i I don't focus on it as much and the thing with harry potter if uh, we're just going to go here, I guess, for a little bit. Uh, Harry Potter has some bad CGI. The film isn't completely CGI. And that is almost what Attack of Clones is. It has so much of it that it, like, invades the movie. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and the same is true to extent with Revenge of the Sith is almost all CGI too. Um, I guess but I, it just I, I, did, I didn't feel like, I didn't feel like settings and backgrounds bothered me very much. Creatures and things that moved, sure, but I don't. I never felt like the backgrounds bothered me too much. The backgrounds in Camino are really bad. Um, Camino is probably the worst of it. Yeah. Yes, I will give you that. And then there's some like. Well, I guess that's more. Come on, you don't love a Star Wars diner? That diner is so bad. <laughs> it just. Is... One thing I guess I will give out. Uh, while the plot makes no sense in Attack of the Clones, one thing I will give it credit for is all the everything that's happening. I feel like whoever was whoever was coked up when they wrote that movie, George e- Lucas. <laughs> everything they're doing is trying to serve the plot. Even yes. though it's it's no one can make heads or tail of the plot. Yeah. Whereas one of the reasons I I hate Rise of Skywalker so much is nothing matters. Sure. Nothing, nothing um, really ultimately helps the plot. Yeah, I mean people say that about Last Jedi. I don't agree with them. I don't either. But um, yeah, that's the big controversy with that one. I will say like so. The arena scene too. It's funny. Like there's a lot of bad CGI in Attack of Clones, but. When it's good, it's really good. And that uh, arena CGI where they're in like the basically like the gladiatorial mm-hmm. arena, oh, that's and, great. And then like I, I love that all all three of them like trying to kill their own respective monsters in yeah, different ways. That's a fun and, and then I liked see like well Padme is a really annoying character throughout all three films. <laughs> um, when she has these moments of strength, I think she's really kind of a cool mm-hmm. character. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Uh, Attack of Clones to me though is also the first time that George Lucas actually does fan service um, in that he gives Yoda a lightsaber and has him have a fight Yeah, and that's like one of those things that when you philosophically think about the character and what Yoda brings to Empire and just this idea of here's this hermit who seems like he can't do anything and he's this old guy but he still can use the force like it's trying to say something about strength and where strength really lies and to have that character that is portrayed as actually being kind of weak physically but mentally strong then be like physically a monster like a Mm -hmm. awesome force lightsaber fighting monster kind of small monster thing Completely goes against what that character is. I will say that was a kid. Oh yeah, shit. absolutely. I don't. But as disagree. an adult, it's like that's weird. Right. Don't disagree with you at all. Um, I'm trying. To, where did we put Revenge of the Sith on our list? Uh, Revenge of the Sith for me. Seven. Okay, and I had it at eight. So what? What's below Revenge of the Sith for you? Return of the Jedi. Return. All right, give it to me. Why? Um. Part of this, like I said, for me is um, my ratings through Letterboxd. It's been a while since I've watched that film. Sure. There's a chance it could. There's probably there's a chance it could get higher. But when I had watched it, when I had watched uh, uh, four, five, and six all in succession, it just didn't do it for me. So, like, I guess I should specify. Um, the film has a three and a half star out of five. Okay. Sin, 
which is the same rating that I gave. Or, uh, Revenge of the Sith? Revenge of the Sith. Okay. So how it aggregated it is beyond me. <clears throat> so I might, Revenge of the, uh, Return of the Jedi might be a better rated film for me. Um, it just that's the way that it, it, it figured it out. Okay. Because uh, I don't hate, um, I don't hate uh, uh, Return of the Jedi at all. And I feel like if the Disney films weren't worked into the mix, it would be probably even higher. Sure. Um, it's just, I, it was a movie I liked a lot as a kid, but rewatching it now as an adult, the things that are, work really well in the film work for me, but just large chunks of it didn't. Like, I, I, I personally, looking when I rewatched it, like, I think Jabba's Palace sequence goes on way too fucking long. It goes long in the... Um... In the Lucas revised cut, where he's and got that whole dance number. I feel like even without the dance number, it's still pretty long. Um, I don't love the Ewoks as much as everyone else. Uh, well, see, most people would say they don't love the Ewoks. I feel like a lot of people do. I do. Because the Ewoks, for me, are very similar to the idea of what Yoda fighting with a lightsaber. I have a hard time believing these teddy bear-like creatures can hold their, hold their own so well, so effectively... Against the Empire. Oh, but that's a... To me, though, the difference in that is... Like, that's the point of the story. The point of the story is that it's the... Um, you know, it's the, the... It's the same thing as Yoda and Empire Strikes Back. What? It's these things that aren't supposed to do something. Go and do it because of where strength actually I will lies. say, though, I think I think uh, Jedi has my favorite lightsaber fight. Well, it's not, the, it's not the... The most visually interesting. I think it has the most stakes. And it, it feels very much like an old samurai film where two people are are debating philosophy while having this fight. Yeah. They're, they're not fighting necessarily to kill each other. They're fighting to hopefully convince the other person to join them. Not hide forever, Luke. I will not fight you. Give yourself to the dark side. It is the only way you can save your friends. Yes, your thoughts betray you. Your feelings for them are strong, especially for. Sister. So, you have a twin sister. Your feelings have now betrayed her, too. Obi-Wan was wise to hide her from me. Now his failure is complete. If you will not turn to the dark side, then perhaps she but they're willing to kill the other person if they have to. Yep. I think that's my favorite lightsaber fight in the entire franchise. I think that the Return of the Jedi lightsaber fight is the most underrated in all the franchises. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And it might and be the best. With the Emperor I watching to yeah. the entire time and giggling like a fucking creeper just <laughs> makes it much more interesting. Yeah. And I think the Empire, the lightsaber duel in, in Empire is really great too. Um, especially because of the cinematography in that movie. That, that movie is my favorite so cinematography in the franchise. Yeah. And I didn't realize it until the Blu-rays came out. Nice. Yeah. Um, I'm glad to see that um, 
Rogue One's both really high for both of us. Yep. And we just rewatched me and Amanda, and it's it still holds up. As and like I I I love the look of the film, I love the music of the film. There's very little I don't love about that movie. That's a it's a weird thing because I've come across people over the last couple of years who really don't like it, and I just don't understand why. And what I find funny is there's I've seen people who have gone on record and said how much they dislike it, but love the Mandalorian. It's like it's the same tone. Yeah. They're very similar. Yeah, totally. Yeah, you know, you're absolutely correct. And it's even, like, similar enough, you could say, in terms of, like, the main characters almost aren't the point of the film. No. And it's that's, not the That's the thing that some people complain about. It's like, oh, I don't really like any of the characters. I was like, one, do you huh? dislike any of the characters? Like, yeah, we, 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 we haven't gotten three movies to get to learn who they are, but I, I feel like we're given enough mm-hmm. that we fi- figure out who these people are. And um, and I feel like there's still a lot, of, a lot to like. And like you're saying, it's not really about liking the character. And I almost think it has the most devastating, really sad ending of the entire franchise. Not the like Darth Vader mowing everyone down. That's fan service. But it's a lot of fucking fun. It's fun fan service. The the scene on the beach. And actually, I I honestly feel like they could have just ended the film on the beach. But it wouldn't have. It would have been a really down ending. I feel like they needed that fun fan servicey way to end the film and tie it into the next one. But that scene on the beach still fucking gets yeah. me. Yeah. No, I think. Uh, also, uh, the villain in that movie. I don't remember who plays him. Um, um, ben uh, Mendelsohn, uh, who plays uh, Krennic. Yeah, he he's so good. He's he's a prime example of a person who's so good and is not letting. You know, how some actors, I feel like, would view a movie like this as being beneath them. He is fucking bringing it every scene. Last time I gave, I said that the movie everyone has to check out is uh, He Won't Get Far on Foot. Well, that was, last, that was last week. Yeah. So this time, what I'm going to say, this week's pick, Kyle Arpke certified pick, is Mississippi Grind. It's a film with Ben Mendelsohn. Add to my list. Ben Mendelsohn and... Um, ryan reynolds uh that I are love they're, ryan reynolds. they're basically going on like a a gambling bender kind of thing it is amazing ben mendelson is top notch it's on netflix amazon prime video and canopy right now go watch it you will not be disappointed and if you are watch it again <laughs> watch it until you like it <laughs> yes so um, i'm happy to see both of us <laughs> have a lot of appreciation for rogue one because I was surprised that Solo was below um, um, Force Awakens. So, but I think it's because they're both rated four stars. So it's just kind of sure. figured out. Because I think I might like Solo more than Force Awakens. Solo seems to be the movie that I hear you talk about the most. Yeah. Talk about your love of Solo. Because I, I will say this. I think Solo is an okay movie. I am willing to hear arguments for your love of it, though. Solo caught me off guard because I love that the film... I I guess the thing I've been liking about Disney's run with Star Wars is people essentially making Star Wars fan fiction. I love when people take Star Wars and set something in that world and make something that doesn't feel completely Star Wars. Sure. Like, that I love. That's what I like about The Mandalorian so much, too. Um, What I like so much about Solo is 
It seems to be the thing that a lot of people fucking hate about it. Lauren, I love the look of it. I love the way it's shot. Absolutely. And it's it's it's. I never knew I wanted a Star Wars film that was shot like The Godfather, but we got it. Um, I remember a mutual friend of ours one time said that Ron Howard is a very milk toast director <laughs> and is not very good. But I feel like this movie feels so youthful and energetic. Is the I loved the 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 the. Um, um, no, no, the beginning of the movie, the like the the, the, the chase scene, like oh, the yeah, speeder, yeah, yeah. the speeder yeah, yeah. chases, like I love that they shot it like a like a nineteen seventies action like car driving movie. That sounds so car driving movie, like <laughs> it was shot like bullets. So it's like I love that they're taking these 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 classic films and they're contemporizing it. I I really liked Alden Enric. Aaron Aaron Reich Aaron Reich. Uh, I always just call him Alden because I can't pronounce. I I loved him as 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 Han. <laughs> Me too. I loved seeing the relationship between Chewie and Han, how that life debt came to be. Um, Donald Glover playing Lando is great because he could have very 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 easily just become some someone doing an impression of Billy D. Williams, and I feel like he's able to still be Billy D. Williams but bring his own self into the movie. Um, I didn't necessarily love Amelia Clark. I didn't oh. dislike her. I just thought she was good. Um, I just didn't care as much. Okay. Um, and then, like, uh, I was ready to, like, kind of hate Woody Harrelson in that movie. And he's still not my favorite part about it. But, like, I think the way that Ron Howard shot war in this film is the most brutal we've ever seen it look. And then, like, when we finally do meet Woody Harrelson, he's got, like, this this almost, like, um, this Errol Flynn-like quality to him with his, like, pencil-thin mustache. And he's just, like, John wayne it up. And the, I don't know. It's just, it just hit all these sensibilities where it got all, like, the these nods and feeling to classic cinema that I love, but still is able to contemporize in a way that I really liked. And I just thought the charm that Alden Ehrenreich, or however you pronounce his name, had just oozed off the screen. Every scene he's in... They're in a movie full of ste- scene stealing actors. He still stole every scene that he was in. And then by the end of the film, I really felt like we started seeing the progression of who Han Solo would become. Totally. Uh, this is the most excited I've gotten this entire yeah. episode. No, this is exciting. I'm excited. It's I'm excited hearing your excitement. Because so actually, yeah, I'm not going to put Solo above Force Awakens. Yeah. Screw it, Letterbox uh, says. So here's uh. There are some. I, I think we should maybe go into some complaints about the film, but oh, I. Oh, I'm wanna, sure they have. But bef- you want to hear what I loved about it first, right? Exactly. But before we even touch on that, you touched on something that I actually think is really, what I think is really good about this film, um, which is that all of the relationships with the characters, all of their relationships are great. For a film um, that was rewritten and the directors were pulled off of it and Ron Howard had to come in halfway through, it feels very concise. Because by the time we get to that ending, all of the choices that the characters make with between Han and Beckett and, um, oh, why am I forgetting her name? Amelia Car- Clark's character. Uh, sure, hold on, i got to pull it up here. It's uh, Kira. Kira, thank you. Uh, they all work so well. Like you... You're rooting for them. You you feel their heartbreak a bit, uh, and it makes me the the best thing that Solo does is it makes me want to see more. Yeah, I it, like it can solely convince me 
that a franchise based off of Young Solo would be fun and worth my time. Definitely. And I also love, too, like, I, I love that it kind of shatters ex- expectations a little bit, too. Like, I love the heartbreak when Kira and, and Han weren't able to get on the ship together, and he just instantly joins the army so he can get back. And I also love that yeah. line, too. It's like, uh, it was like, why are you joining the army so I can get back here as soon as possible? And they're like, why? Yeah. Um, and then no, you know, he goes, go back to check. And oh, I also fucking love, too, that, like, when he gets to war, he's just very much like, I am in over my head. This sucks. <laughs> it's a Han Solo thing. Yeah. And then, like, uh, but by the time that, you know, he, he's doing all this stuff to get back to Kira, and he winds up running into Kira, and she's had a very different life, a very hard life, and she's in a good place, sort of. Yeah. But she has done some very shitty she's done some very vile things to get to this point uh i recently read this quote off of twitter that someone had said that han solo is the kind of guy that is constantly in over his head and is just shrugging off life but when when push comes to shove and it's the you know the 11th hour he has to just get shit done and does it Mm-hmm. And it's the most relatable any person ever could be, like any character, Star Wars character ever is. And it's a completely true quote. Yeah. Han Solo is, uh, in my opinion, he is the most human character, uh, closest to real life to anyone that I know. Um, I actually think my, my stepdad is very much a Han Solo. And I can't say that I know anyone who is yeah. any other Star Wars character. Um uh, to give two complaints to Solo, while I think it makes me excited to see more because I th- would love to continue to see Alden play Solo and to play him against Chewbacca because uh, that relationship, you know, for one being an alien that doesn't speak English, that relationship works really well. Uh, and can, and it shouldn't work as well as it Right. Uh, but I'll say this. While it does that for me, I th- the film that we are given is very uh, by the numbers. None of the like twists that it's trying to make work as twists. Like all of the double crossings and all that, are you see them a mile away. Every, like every plot point is and, so and obvious. That's all very fair. Uh-huh. And I think that's ultimately, without even realizing it, probably a reason why it's not higher on my list. But I also don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. I think it kills some of the thrill of it. Yeah. I just, for me, it's just, it's, it's kind of the same thing I've seen in an Indiana Jones film. It's just like, it's, you kind of know what you're getting into. And some, it's, it's a perfect popcorn movie. See, with Indiana Jones, you know what you're getting into, but it still surprises you. That's what mm-hmm. that's what good blockbuster cinema is somehow able to do. Mm-hmm. Like even like you know, Force Awakens for all intents and purposes, you should know where it's going, and you kind of do know where it's going. But along the way, you're kind of surprised by things. And I'm not really surprised by anything in Solo. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other uh, issue that I have with the film is that going back to your point of like loving that we can make like fan fiction movies, basically. This is way too much of that. Uh, I, the the small thing that I really hate is the fact that they even reveal how he was named Solo. Never needed it happen. 
was very cheesy that some yeah actually i kind of forgot that was even in there yeah but even past that the film is like it's like oh you wanted to know how han made the kessel run here's how he made the kessel run oh you want to know how he won the falcon from lando here's how he won the falcon you want to know how he he came and uh, met chewbacca here it is it's like all done in one story and it's just it just makes Solo's origin feel cheap, in that regard. And I get, I get that, and I feel like this would have been, I I would love to see a franchise of this. <laughs> um, I feel like they're damned if they do they're they're damned if they do damned if they don't type situation because they're making a Han Solo movie, one way or another. If they would have made a Han Solo movie and not explained everything, all this stuff, fans would have been pissed. I don't think so. I think they would. Because I think fans already didn't want this movie. Yeah, but then it's one of those things like, we didn't want this movie, you gave us this movie, now you're not showing us this. I feel like there still would have been... I feel like no matter what decision they would have made, there was going to be backlash. Well, here's also why I I disagree with that. The movie ends with an idea that there could be a second one. If you end the movie with an idea there could be a second one and you don't give the fans everything of Han Solo's origins, then there's this already this anticipation of, oh, a second one could have some of that stuff. I feel like they knew before the movie's even finished it wasn't getting a second one. They didn't know when they wrote it, though. That's fair. Uh, I also also wonder if some some of that was producer notes. Like, uh, hey, we know, need some of this stuff. We need some of the, We need more of this stuff. Yeah, there's I mean, a lot of like know. the uh, like that uh, that section of the film or those, those parts of the film. I feel like to me, just feel like well, we need to beef this up. We need this. We need this. We need this. Yeah. And I could be wrong. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, whoever's but, fault it is, it it just it's it's a fault, mm-hmm. you know. And at the end of the day, that's all that is. Yeah. Um, but with that being said, I, it is a film that has grown on me over time, and I still categorize it as a, I like this movie more than I dislike it. Yeah, and I, f- I know I'm in a minority for people who defend it as much as I do. Um, I'm glad, this is one that I'm glad you defend, because in general, it's a film that not enough people have seen, and the more people that see it, uh, the more, like, it's it's an interesting thing of, like, I kind of get annoyed that more people didn't see it in the theater because mm-hmm. all these people saw it outside of the theater and all of those people like this movie. Yeah. And if they would have seen it in the theater, we could maybe have gotten a second one or maybe like even, you know, there were talks that they were going to do a Boba Fett movie for a while. And I hated the idea of them doing one until I saw Solo and went, oh, if the Boba Fett movie is the sequel to Solo, but it's done in this weird, like, you're just making an underground... Or uh, uh, the black market Star Wars universe. Yeah, that could be. Before I let you guys go, here are a couple movie reviews that I did for Arrow Video and Vinegar Syndrome. So today I'm going to be reviewing a couple movies. Um, two from Vinegar Syndrome, two from Arrow. The Vinegar Syndrome ones I watched a while back. Originally, me and Nick we're gonna go. We're gonna do a joint uh, bonus episode, and it didn't happen. Uh, it's it's still going to happen, but I was saving these. Re- pardon me, I was saving these reviews for then, but uh, I don't want to forget them completely. So I'm just gonna knock them out now instead. Uh, by the time that me and Nick do do our bonus 
joint episode. I'll have new stuff to review, so that's not going to be a problem. I will start with those, uh, the two Vinegar Syndrome titles, just because they aren't as clear in my mind at the moment. So first, we're going to start with the one I guess I like the best uh, out of the two, and I didn't particularly love either title. Hollywood Horror House, also known as, what was it, Savage Intruder, which... Not neither title is particularly great, but I feel like Hollywood Horror House at least gives you a better idea of what that movie could be about. Um, but anyways, back of the box says Vic Valance, played by David Garfield, is an enigmatic young man who has manipulated his way into working at the decaying mansion of a once prolific but now reclusive and alcoholic movie star named Catherine Packard, played by Miriam Hopkins. While the rest of the house staff become suspicious of Vic's intentions, the aging movie queen finds him a companion and, she hopes, a lover. But as Vic begins behaving in more and more erratic ways, it becomes clear that he's far more sinister than his demeanor implies and might in fact be a vicious serial killer who has been murdering and dismembering middle-aged women in Hollywood. A psychedelic proto-slasher by the way of Sunset Boulevard, Hollywood Horror House, a.k.a. Savage Intruder, was shot on and off between late 1969 and mid-1973 by writer-producer-director Donald Wolf. With funds from his Star Home, sorry, Star Home Bus Tour Company, chock full of lurid, candy-colored freakouts shot by John Morrill, who, made, uh, who shot a boy and his dog, along with surprisingly grizzly, grisly murder set pieces, plus a supporting cast including Gail Sondergaard, Virginia Wing, Florence Lake, and Joe Besser in his final role in a feature film. Hollywood Horror House ramps up its weirdness all the way through its demented final act and comes to Blu-ray from Vinegar Syndrome, newly restored in 4K from its original 35mm camera negative. So Hollywood Horror House is definitely a, a weird movie. So the back of the box likened it to that of... Sunset Boulevard, and I can definitely see that, but I feel like the film struggled figuring out what it wanted to be. It's a fascinating little gem, but I just don't feel like it was very great. Not very great. It just felt, doesn't, don't, I just didn't feel like it was great, but I still found it fascinating, and I strangely want to rewatch it sooner than later. It's very well shot, all things considered, uh, and has a creative reverence for hollywood uh there's little bits of whatever happened to baby jane a uh, gore that reminds me a lot of blood feast and definitely an eye for it experimental in those freakout shots it wasn't very gory because a lot of stuff seemed like it was shot off camera um but and that i think the the it not being very gory is what stops it from being a true exploitation film uh when we did get gore it felt very much like as i said like blood feast with its candy colored gore um, but the little bit did have was pretty jaw dropping. Um, uh, but where I say it's, it's struggling to figure out what it wants to be. Um, I guess I didn't know if it wanted to be an exploitation film. I didn't know if it wanted to be a commentary on Hollywood and old Hollywood. Um, but I found myself weirdly fascinated. I was a little bored. I was just a little bored. Uh, like, I just don't feel like it, it, it really kept my attention the way I wanted it to. But, um, at the same time, like... 
there's something intriguing about it. And like I said, the the there's these great freakout scenes. Like these the the filmmaker definitely has an eye for the experimental, which I liked. Um, and there are some really poignant scenes between um, Catherine Packard and Vic Valance and them discussing their lives with each other. There's also a really funny scene with hippies. They go to a hippie party, and there's a phenomenal piece of dialogue where a little person, who's also a drug dealer, is offering Catherine drugs. And he says, I wrote the quote down because it made me laugh so much. I've got coke, speed, grass, and acid. And Catherine, without skipping a beat, says, no thank you. The only trips I take are to Europe. So that I thought was hysterical. Um, I wanted to like the movie more because I usually love movies like this. The ones that are kind of trying to comment a little bit on Hollywood. Cause obviously I'm, I'm a Hollywood nerd. I love that type of shit. Uh, I wanted a little bit more of whatever happened to baby Jane and it became like a, I don't even say a typical slasher film by the end. Cause it was a very weird film. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I thought the film was, it wasn't. It wasn't very good, but there were enough pieces of intrigue that kept me going through the through the entire film, and I feel like I might enjoy it more on second watch. But anyways, special features include newly scanned and restored in 4K from its 35mm original camera negative. It's got a historical commentary track that features David Dakota of Rapid Heart TV and David Del... Del Vale of SinisterImage.com. Uh, David Dakota is also a pretty prolific B-movie filmmaker. Promotional image gallery, reversible cover artwork, English SDH subtitles. The film was made in 1973. It's 91 minutes in color, 1851 widescreen photography, and with a mono soundtrack. Next up, I've got a movie called The Zombie Island Massacre. Back of the box says... A group of Americans, on what they assumed would be a relaxing and fun-filled vacation in the Caribbean, soon find themselves trapped in the island wilderness after their tour bus breaks down. Alone and stranded, the group begins to fall prey to an unknown voodoo mask-wearing assailant, who bumps them off in various nasty ways ranging from decapitation and evisceration to impalement. As the surviving members of the group frantically search for help, they begin to suspect that not all of them might be who they claim they are, and that one of them might be a cold-blooded killer. John N. Carter's Zombie Island Massacre, the production of which is still somewhat shrouded in mystery, was produced at the height of the 80s slasher craze, and features all of the genre hallmarks, including gruesome deaths, gratuitous nudity, and an entirely original looking killer guys along with a score by genre favorite harry manfredini who did friday the 13th previously viewable only in a dark and drab video sourced editions which mask its impressive special effects and surprisingly colorful cinematography by robert baldwin who shot the exterminator vinegar syndromes vinegar syndrome brings zombie on massacre to blu-ray newly restored from its 35 millimeter original negative we cordially invite you to escape to a marvelous tropical paradise it's an island of peaceful beaches and happy tourists welcome to beautiful zombie island come on grab a seat on our air-conditioned zombie island tour bus i I can safely promise you a tour you'll never forget so refresh yourself and get ready for the fun-filled excitement of Zombie Island Massacre. 
in Zombie Island Massacre, you'll witness ancient voodoo ceremonies. And if you're very lucky, and for no extra charge, you might even get to participate in these picturesque rituals. So come on down. Sample the world-famous zombie island cuisine. Cannibalism. German, French, and Italian. All on cannibalism. Yes, Zombie Island Massacre, where young lovers take fun-filled vacations of terror. Torture. Violence. Zombie Island Massacre, where you can take a nature walk through the lush tropical jungle. Zombie Island Massacre, where you can take a moonlit swim in crystal clear freshwater streams. The best snorkeling in the free world, where a healthy midnight jog brings you back to your tranquil luxury accommodations. You won't believe your senses when you find out the blood-curdling truth behind Zombie Island Massacre. The producers of Zombie Island Massacre are proud to feature international superstar Rita Jenrette. Yes, you must visit Zombie Island's playground of the very rich. Zombie Island is the beautiful people's favorite hotspot. On romantic Zombie Island, you'll lose your heart. You'll also lose your head. Zombie Island Massacre. It's a one-way ticket to a fun-filled vacation of terror, torture, and violence. Zombie Island Massacre. Honestly, weirdly enough, this film reminded me of, uh, of Adam Green's Hatchet in terms of its setup. The idea that... Pardon me, I'm going to take a sip of coffee. The idea that you have this group of tourists, who in this case they're in the Caribbean and they want to—they're going on a voodoo island tour. Um, you have this group of tourists who are going on a tour to see what the see the real side of the island. You know, in case of Hatchet, they're in New Orleans. The tour guy, the tour bus is a little, little shoddy, a little rundown. You don't quite trust them. They get to see this tour, and then, in the end, the tour bus breaks down, and they have to fend for themselves, and something's out there killing them. It feels very much like Hatchet. I'm not saying Adam Green ripped that off or, and by any extent, because it is, it's a it's a great setup. Uh, it's just, it, it's really funny how much it reminded me of that, though. I think I liked Hatchet better, though I think this was better shot. I don't know. It's a toss-up. Uh, I definitely liked Hatchet 2 best, but unimportant unimportant uh i'm not reviewing hatchet today um the i didn't think the film was very good i wanted to like it quite a bit but because i'm how many island slasher films are there not many that i know of uh but it, it did kind of weirdly enough when i was watching it the film that came to mind for me let me look up the director real quick uh because i do not remember their name it reminded me most of a film from the 50s, 1959, uh, Black Orpheus, directed by Marcel Camus. Cam- I don't think it's Camus. It's spelled Camus, but Marcel Camus. Camus? I don't know. I don't know French. Um, so it remind- that was the film that came to mind when I was watching. It was Black Orpheus. Um, but 
like the Black Orpheus of slasher films with how it painstakingly tries to add in moments of culture of the island. Uh, I don't know how accurate it is like for either film that can't really be discussed at this time but that was i thought that was pretty interesting where it would show a lot of shots of what i imagine to be the island the people of this island uh their practices uh the voodoo ritual that we had saw felt even if it's completely made up felt pretty what i imagine to be authentic um so that i thought that was kind of interesting um Though what really helps the film is, so the cinematography is pretty good. The little bit of gore that we do get is pretty good. Harry Manfredini's score, which is very clearly recycled from Friday the 13th, does wonders for the cl- for the clunkiness and the pacing. I don't know quite how that works, but it, it, it really amps it up. Now, what I didn't like about the film, it was if this would have just been a standard slasher, it would have been whatever. Um, but what is truly strange about the film is there is a weird subplot about drug dealers um profiting off of the island i don't want to spoil who who's involved and who the necessarily the drug dealers are but when that subplot started coming in i was like wait a second what and then it kind of lost me It, it it really did um, I found a hard time caring. For some reason, the, the more plot this movie adds, the less I care. Um, and I, I was bummed out because I was looking forward to it because it's, you know, it's a trauma film. And, you know, while a lot of trauma films aren't usually the best, they're usually still a lot of fun. Um, but, yeah, I, I tried. I I, like, I feel like this film is going to be great with an audience. It's going to be a lot of fun just because how ridiculous. Watching it by myself at home not a, didn't do a whole lot for me. So, um, yeah, that, that's, that's Zombie Island Massacre. I don't, I know I don't have a whole lot to say about these films, but, um, yeah, they, they weren't my favorite. They weren't my, uh, my favorite, uh, things that Vinegar Syndrome has sent me. Special features include a newly scanned and restored in 2K from its 35mm original camera negative, original theatrical trailer, multiple TV spots, Original promotional sizzle reel, which that's really funny because it's like a truncated version of the film. And if the score for Zombie on Massacre feels like it's a ripoff of Friday the 13th, like it really much feels like unused stuff from Friday the 13th that Harry Manfredini had around or just ripping himself off, which is not a bad thing. Uh, the original promotional sizzle reel is straight up using the music from Friday the 13th, which is really funny. Uh, it's got reversible cover artwork, English SDH subtitles. Film was made in 1983, 88 minutes, color, 1851 widescreen cinematography, and it is a mono soundtrack. So those are my titles from um, Vinegar Syndrome. Now let's move on to Arrow. This first one, I believe, is from Arrow Films. I don't, and it's from Arrow Films. I just don't remember which subsidiary it's from. Um, it is called. It's from Robert. It's Robert Altman's film. Uh, it's Arrow Academy. It's from Arrow Academy. It's Robert Altman's film, Kansas City. Back of the black says. Returning to the city of his birth for inspiration, legendary Maverick director Robert Altman helms an evocative, bullet-riddled tribute to the music and movies of his youth in Kansas City a Depression-era gangster flick, as only he could make one. Blondie O'Hara, played by Jennifer Jason Leigh, resorts to desperate measures when her low-level hood husband Johnny, played by the always fantastic Dermot Mulroney, gets caught trying to steal from Seldom Seen, played by Harry Belafonte, 
a local crime boss operating out of a jazz haunt, the Hey Hey Club. Out on a whim, Blondie kidnaps laudanum adult socialite Carolyn, played by, played by Miranda Richardson, hoping her influential political husband can pull the right strings and get Johnny out of seldom scenes clutches. Nominated for the Palm Door at Cannes and featuring a remarkable soundtrack performed live by some of the best players in contemporary jazz, one of Altman's most underrated and idiosyncratic films finally makes its long-awaited Blu-ray debut. So, did they give you something to bring to me? Yeah. I got something for you. Wait, we'll go. Try to get over the shock of this so we can uh, get down to business and cooperate with each other. Somebody set me up, Seldom. Some nigga robbed me in your cab, stuck a gun in my face and took all my damn money. That's what I'm talking about. My cab? I got to say this for you. You got guts. Guts and no brains. Probably can talk this over like John. Take your coat off. You come swinging in here like, like Tarzan, right in the middle of a sea of niggas. So, uh, can I have my husband back now? How'd you like him? And a sucker in a box. Son of a bitch, don't you touch him! There's a guy named Johnny O'Hare, okay? He's been picked up by some nigger gangsters. If Johnny gets free, you get your wife back. If he doesn't, I'm gonna put a bullet through her head. If I see anyone suspicious around, your wife will wake up in a pile of dirt. Only she won't wake up, get it? I don't really know what you're talking about. I'm not talking to you, halfway. When one person is talking, it's reasonable to assume that the party who's speaking is speaking to the other party, isn't it? You'll be exercising your God-given right to vote. However, you'll be voting the way I tell you to vote. And understood? Yeah. Understood? Yes, Shut up! Sooner or later, everybody got to go. I used to say when that is. In your case, I knew. Go. Yeah! You shoot that gun! You shoot that gun! You're not gonna go yellow pants on me, are you? You gotta give this up and you gotta let her go too because they're gonna kill you! If my mother was alive, she'd cut your balls off. You know they give the death penalty now for kidnapping? Jesus Christ. What are you trying to do? Give me nightmares? Um, oops, sorry, didn't mean to drop my phone. Very much kind of how I felt about uh, the other two films. I didn't hate it, but I didn't necessarily love it. So with, I would, fun fact for you guys. Robert Altman's work is a little bit of a dark spot for me where i've not seen a whole lot of what he's made i don't think i've actually up until this film i don't think i've seen any of them like i grew up watching mash but i'd never actually seen the movie because mainly because my mom who really loved the the can't talk today tv show version of mash didn't really like the movie because she didn't think it was funny enough so because she always said it wasn't very good i never got around to it and I've heard the film's fantastic. It's just, you know, someone you care about, you love, tells you the movie's, the movie's not very good. You don't really, you know, get to it. With Kansas City, normally I love films like this. So this is very much an ensemble cast type movie. Uh, it's, you get a lot of random characters and then you find out how all related they are. It's usually what could be considered a hangout movie. Issue with it, I just 
didn't find myself caring very much. I really like Jennifer Jason Lee in this movie. She's great in everything I've seen her in. Um, because she's a gorgeous lady. She She's not afraid to play a character with unattractive traits. The way she talks and the way she acts. She's very much playing a, a really gruff feminine character. The way that her and Miranda Richardson play off of each other I think is phenomenal. Because... So Blondie ends up kidnapping the woman Carolyn so that way she can convince her husband to help get her husband try to get convince Carolyn's husband to try to get Blondie's husband back but because of this she has to stick around with her and they start forming this really weird bond where I wouldn't necessarily say they're friends but they're passing the time with each other but really where the issue came from I just didn't care about all the characters um Vinny, stop it. Dermot Mulroney, who, as I said before, is usually fantastic. He's barely in the film. He's in the film a lot, but he just doesn't have a lot to do. Steve Buscemi, who's always great, same deal, doesn't have a whole lot that he's doing. The characters that we really spend the most time with are Harry Belafonte, as seldom seen, Jennifer Jason Lee, and Miranda Richardson. And I, I feel like a similar idea or a similar script handled by a different director, maybe like the Coen brothers or even... Richard Linklater, I think the film would have been a lot more fun. I feel like that's honestly what I'm missing. Because the film shot very well. Everyone in it is great. Um, the music's great. I just didn't have a I just didn't enjoy watching it very much. Which is a shame because I went into this one really excited for it. Uh, I don't necessarily think it's a bad movie. I just don't think it was necessarily for me. Special features for the movie include... A high def, it's a high-definition Blu-ray... Uh, original 2.0 and 5.1 DTS HD audio, English subtitles for the deaf and hard of hearing, an audio commentary by director Robert Altman, which I would actually like to listen to, newly filmed appreciation by critic Jeff Andrew, which does a great job. <coughs> Sorry, coronavirus. <laughs> well, he does a great job of kind of, of getting new viewers like myself a good idea of what Robert Altman's style was like, why he's important to cinema, and then setting it all up to why he thinks this film is kind of an underappreciated masterpiece. Uh, I This is in French, I can't pronounce it. Gare Trains et Derailment, a 2007 visual essay by French critic Luc Laguerre, plus a short introduction by the film uh, to the film narrated by Laguerre. Um, Robert Altman goes to the heart of America in Kansas City, the music, two 1996 promotional featurettes, including interviews of cast and crew, electronic press kit interviews of Altman, Lee Richardson, Belafonte, and musician Joshua Redmond, plus behind-the-scenes footage, four theatrical trailers, TV spots, image gallery, and the reversible, uh, reversible sleeve, cover sleeve. So that's Kansas City. And then... <laughs> the next film is a f um, film that I didn't I I wanted to really like, and I thought I was gonna hate, and I and I think it might be my favorite movie out of everything we've watched. It is Philip Ridley's The Passion of Darkly Noon. Tagline is If you go down to the woods tonight. Dot 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 dot. Described by critic 
Mark Kermode as an extraordinary filmmaker and one of the UK's most imaginative talents. Visionary director Philip Ridley followed his sensational debut, The Reflecting Skin, with another surreal incursion into the dark heart of the American dream of the American dream in The Passion of Darkly Noon. Darkly Noon, played by Brendan Fraser, is the sole survivor of a military style attack on an isolated religious community. Stumbling through a forest in a daze, he is rescued by the free-spirited and enigmatic Callie, played by Ashley Judge. Judd, sorry. Darkly finds himself feeling strange, new desires for Callie as he nurses as she nurses him back to health, only to watch her jump into the arms of her returning mute lover Clay, played by Vigo Mortensen. Lost in the woods with only his fundamentalist upbringing to make sense of his unrequited passions, Darkly soon descends into an explosive and lethal rage. Now available for the first time worldwide on Blu-ray, Ridley's talent for spellbinding, hallucinogenic dream imagery is on full display in a glittering new transfer of his most formally inventive and electrifying film. The mesmerizing soundtrack includes two songs co-written by Ridley for the film Look What You've Done to My Skin, performed by Gavin Friday, and Who Will Love Me Now, performed by PJ Harvey. Play the trailer. They attacked us. Fire. Gunshots. So my parents got killed. They were shot. Somehow I got away. It's alright. Don't, don't do that. Being naked isn't the same as sex, you know. It's a sin. Well, surely God meant for us to enjoy ourselves. I, I, I never met anyone like, like you before. I know. I think about you. Callie loves Clay. She has since the first time she saw him. I know what you're feeling. I can see it in your eyes back there. Me wrong! Monster of the forest, boy. You know what it feeds on. Beautiful, young man. Just like you. I love Clay. God can strike me down dead if there's something wrong with that. And then she commenced to tempt him, to tease him. Clay? That house where you're living now, I lived there. My husband found a girl at the edge of the forest. I knew she was evil from the start. You can walk as far into the woods as you have a mind to go. She tempted him to her, and she killed him. It takes a, a witch to do that. Can I do anything? I'm just trying to sort something out, and when I've sorted it out, I'll be all right again. You're helpless in the spell of a witch. She's cursed your son. Why are you looking at me that way? No faith without blood. Hallelujah. Time for my walk in the dark. I am still here, waiting for her to be punished. Stop it! Stop it! The 
Passion of Darkly Moon is a goofy film. And I mean that in the best possible way because when me and Amanda first were watching it, we were super stoked for it. And then I want to say we were about 20 to 30 minutes in and we're like, wow, this movie is terrible. And I don't say that very often. Like, we just thought the the love interest was really forced. We really did not, like, Ashley Judd's performance at all. And while Brendan Fraser's usually pretty good, like, he's just kind of over the top in a, in, in, kind of a good, in a kind of a great way. But since we had no idea what this film was building towards, we just thought it was going to be, like, an erotic thriller. And we just, like, look, we both agreed. It's like, okay, we're going to finish this movie. We're going to finish it to keep making fun of it. And then the shoe dropped. Literally. There is a scene in the film where a glittery shoe floats down a river. And that's also around the time that Viggo Mortensen pops into the film. And then we were hooked. Something about this fucking movie. Just, it just, a switch flipped. And then once he started bringing more of this surrealistic imagery in, we were both really hooked. It reminded me a lot of. Like when I watched Mandy for the first time, and then this this craziness, because like I said, the beginning of the film we thought was kind of laughable, kind of funny, and we really didn't like the way it was shot. Everything was over, like, and obviously intentionally so, but was very overexposed. That we we just felt it was kind of stepping on the imager, images. But once that shoe came by, we were sold. And then watching Brendan Fraser's descent into madness and his his dreams of his parents who are no longer with us you know their bullet riddled bodies talking to him uh and then his plot for revenge and this really fucking amazing fiery third act that i thought was spellbinding combined with this beautiful score um by nick bacat um i I think I kind. Of, I think I actually might love this film. It's kind of hard. It's it's kind of it's it's strange for me because I don't usually like start by hating something and then loving it in the end. I think on Letterboxd I gave it three and a half stars, which for me is really good. Uh, it could go up, it could go down, but I'm floored by this film and I want more people to see it. So the Passion of Darkly Noon has got my full recommendation because it's everything I look for in movies where it's challenging, it's artistic, it's surreal, it's weird. Yeah, I, I want more people to see this film. Um, special features include new 2K restoration by Arrow Films from the original camera negative, approved by Philip Ridley, high-definition Blu-ray presentation, original 5.1 and 2.0 audio, English subtitles for the deaf and hard of hearing, a new audio commentary track by writer-director Philip Ridley, which I want to listen to, Isolated score, track, and lossless stereo, including never-before-heard extended and unused cues, and the two songs from the film. I was listening to this today, and that was phenomenal. Sorry about that. Vinny got into something. Um, Sharp Cuts, a newly filmed interview with editor Leslie Healy. Forest Songs, a newly filmed interview with composer Nick Bacat. Dreaming Darkly, an archive featurette from 2015 featured interviews of Ridley... Bicat and star Viggo Mortensen. Previously unreleased demos of the music score written and performed by Bicat before filming started. That was kind of cool because he talks about how um, Philip Ridley would have the score on hand and play it for people in between takes so they can really imbue and vibe, like embed themselves with music uh, because he wanted the score to play a huge part of the film. Uh, theatrical trailer, image gallery, and reversible sleeve featuring new and original artwork. So, 
Those are the four films I watched, guys. Thank you for listening. As always, rate, review, subscribe, all that good shit. And if you're not down with that, I got two words for you. Watch movies. The Shameless Picture Show is recorded in Milwaukee, Wisconsin and Easton, Maryland, is hosted and produced by Nick Richards and Michael Viers, and is more often than not edited by Michael Viers. Any TV or YouTube versions of the show to date have been edited by Nick Richards, Tyler Hanna, or Dina Villani. Our opening theme music was written especially for us by The Directionals, with narration from Zach McLean. The end credit music you're enjoying at the moment was generously provided by my friends in the band 10 Speed, and our new kick-ass logo was designed by Amanda Byers. A special thank you to all of our Patreon supporters and to our generous sponsors at Mill Creek Entertainment and Vinegar Syndrome. We are on Spotify, Stitcher Radio, iTunes, Google Play, and Libsyn. You can find links to all these tremendous folks, as well as the show, in the description below. Make sure to rate, review, and subscribe.